Welcome to the sixth episode of the Weber 2.0 podcast. This is a special edition of the European Talks, the only podcast focusing on the EU integration of the Western Balkan region. My name is Milos Djindic from European Policy Center, SEP and Weber 2.0. And I am once again today your host for this uh, podcast episode. So today the idea is to um, discuss the state of the civil society cooperation and uh, for good governance in our region, in Western Balkans, and more broadly in Southeast uh, Europe. More specifically, we will try to highlight uh, today uh, some ways or ideas or initiatives to deal with the uh, good government deficits that our countries uh, face and that have consequences for for CSOs and their network and associations to do their work. Some of these um, deficits that I mentioned can be grouped around, for example, shrinking civil space for civil society or foreign influence uh, in media in our states and in civil society, uh, insufficient openness of public administration in terms of access to public information or overly formalistic involvement of civil society and policy and decision-making processes. For this uh, topic for today, we have we had inspiration in the non-paper published by the uh, Southeast European Leadership for Development and Integrity Network, or in short, CELDI. This non-paper was published recently at the very end of 2021. And uh, the uh, reason behind this non-paper was, was to promote principles of operation um, for, of good governance and anti-corruption CSO platforms. So well, this will serve as a Kickstarter for a discussion today. And uh, um, we will have a perfect guest for a conversation about this topic. And uh, it is Mr. Ruslan Stefanov. Mr. Stefanov, welcome. Um, Mr. Stefanov is a program director and the chief economist of the Center for Study of Democracy. Uh, from Bulgaria, but also knowledge and development coordinator of the mentioned CELDI network, which is the largest regional civil society anti-corruption network in the Western Balkans, Turkey, and Eastern neighborhood. Last but certainly not least, CELDI is also the project associate of the Weber 2.0, and uh, this is why we are also uh, pleased to have Mr. Stefano on board for the conversation. Mr. Stefanov's uh, expertise includes a wide array of topics. I will name just a few, such as anti-corruption, informal economy, energy governance and security, innovation, European integration, foreign influence and disinformation, Russian influence in Europe, media capture, and uh, many, many more. So Mr. Stefano, if I skipped some piece of information that is important, feel free to, uh, feel free to add. Thanks, Milos. Uh, that, that, that was very great, great, graceful of yours, and thanks for having me. Thank you. Excellent. So, Mr. Stefano, uh, I spoke at the beginning of this non-paper published by the Saudi uh, in December of the last year about the uh, state of cooperation of civil society networks in our region. Can you, for the beginning, tell us a bit the background uh, and the rationale behind uh, writing this uh, non-paper? And uh, why is this debate about this topic so much needed today and in the future? So feel free. Well, again, thanks for having me and uh, uh, hello to all your listeners across the region. I'm 
civil society is um, um, a cornerstone of, of democracy and democratic societies. And it, it has a very important role to play um, in that it uh, organizes uh, and allows citizens' participation uh, in community matters in and also in policy making, making in particular. So I think we have to, uh, I mean, when we talk about civil society, we have to first understand that it's uh, and different civil society organizations, that there is a wide variety and diversity of civil society organizations, uh, starting from religious sports clubs, cultural organizations, and moving to organizations like ours, which specialize in uh, policy debate, in advocacy, um, and, and um, uh, in mediating uh, between society's interests and uh, political interests. That's why, in essentially, the discussion about cooperation between civil society organizations in the region and in each country individually is a, is, is a discussion about the state of democracy in, in the countries of, of, of our region. Uh, and as many of you have probably noticed or discussed uh, and seen recently, there's been a concern about the um, um, vigor about the energy of these democratic processes uh, in the region. Now, let me be clear, um, any government in the world um, has a natural tendency or any, uh, rather I should not say government, but the power in the world has a natural tendency to concentrate. And it is the role of, uh, which means typically excluding big parts of society in the decision-making process, which is where the civil society uh, uh, comes in. So that's why it's important to have civil society uh, 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 discuss also issues of uh, sensitivity, you know, like corruption, because essentially uh, what we are, when we discuss this with political leaders and with uh, public organizations, with, with government organizations in the region, uh, when we discuss corruption, essentially we discuss that government, the governments themselves have to go after uh, certain political friends. or um, um, So this has to happen uh, through engagement of, of civil society. So that's, that's why I think it's, it's particularly important uh, that we have good cooperation and that we share understanding and the ways we, um, uh, we do it in, in different countries. As, as you know, the region, uh, at least on paper, um, all the countries in the region have, have said that they strive towards uh, EU uh, membership. Uh, and this is the bottom line of our, of our work. Some of the countries like Bulgaria and Romania, uh, Croatia, Slovenia, Greece are already members of uh, Romania, are already members of the EU. Um, the Western Balkans countries, uh, some of them are, are on their way with start negotiations like Serbia and Montenegro. Some are about to start their negotiations like North Macedonia and, and Albania. Uh, and some are still a long way to go. So, um, but in all these countries, um, we've had uh, uh, a lot of issues, just like in the EU, by the way. So the discussion is not, and I want to kind of finish this first question with that. The discussion is not an end destination. You know, we are not, democracy is not about an end goal. Democracy is a journey. And we have each uh, generation after generation has to find its own way of defining uh, and defending democracy. Because I think uh, whatever we, uh, however, whatever discussions we have, history has clearly demonstrated that uh, uh, 
um, democracy and, uh, uh, and, and and market democracy in particular, it has been the most successful um, uh, uh, kind of form of governance, uh, allowing people to prosper um, and and peacefully, most importantly. So uh, I think that's the bottom line. That's why civil society is so important for um, uh, for the region. Yeah, thank you for this. We're certainly not alone in this on this journey for um, to find and defend democracy. As you said, it's not something that's intrinsic only for our region. So you mentioned, uh, uh, just to uh, basically connect to what you said, you mentioned that the discussion about the civil society, discussion about the state of democracy, which is important and big point, and which is, uh, of course, true. Um, now, uh, from that lens, speaking about the good governance, uh, there is a mention in the um, and in the non-paper that is really informative, and I uh, recommend uh, anyone that is interested in this topic to read it, that uh, good governance is not something that is just a technical thing or exercise, that we approach it technically, but it's rather based on certain values, democratic values, such as uh, trust uh, among stakeholders, joint responsibility. So um, we often, uh, in our work, focusing on public administration reform of the Western Balkans here, that uh, this administrative reforms that are part of the good governance are technical exercises that, that require technical knowledge, specific knowledge, and specific focus of the uh, civil society. How, however, I, I would like to shed light a bit on this value aspect of this uh, work of ours. So where is, in your opinion, this, where can we draw the line between the good governance being, you know, uh, technical exercise and actually value-based uh, value-based uh, field. Well, let me let me say uh, essentially uh, the fundamental cornerstone of democracy are human rights, and human rights cannot exist. Uh, they're guaranteed by the by the state. They're guaranteed by the government, uh, and this cannot happen if there is no trust in the government. Is there no trust between the citizens? Is there no trust between the different communities? Um, and if there is corruption, uh, so. If we look at the um, at the numbers that Seldi provides, which measure corruption victimization, that is how many citizens in our region have been victims of corruption, we'll see that the number is really staggering. It's Although it's been declining in the past 20 years, uh, essentially what we see is that one in five citizens, and this is average, I mean, there are countries that is more, there are countries that are better, but average in the region, including, by the way, Bulgaria, Romania, and Croatia, um, is, uh, is, is somewhere between, uh, I mean, essentially one in five uh, and one in 10 citizens, which is, which is very, very high. I mean, if we look at the Eurobarometer for the EU, uh, that this, this number is significantly lower, uh, meaning that even for the more uh, vulnerable countries in Central Europe and in Southern Europe, it's uh, at least uh, at, at most, actually, one in 20, which is, I mean, the difference really staggering. And in countries like uh, in the Nordics, uh, you have almost one in 100, which means that it's it's very, very few and far between, or less than one in 100, actually. So what we have here, essentially, is a systemic problem with corruption. That means uh, a lot of the systems in, in government are corrupt. And there are people out there that um, use their public offices for their own gain, you know, to... 
um, put their friends in, in office to uh, 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 live a better life, you know, through uh, siphoning government resources. And let me be clear about it, you know, corruption is a, a natural element of, of, of power. You know, as the saying goes, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Uh, and the, the, the major missing element here in the region, essentially, uh, is the lack of uh, any indictments or any sentences, court sentences on corruption. And now here is the tricky part, you know, because we definitely want to have, and there should be, uh, corrupt officials, in particularly in higher places, because we we have a saying also here in, in Bulgaria, and I guess it's also across the region, that the fish smells from the head, which means that if we want to have uh, better functioning systems and clear, clean systems, we have to start from the very top. And this is what we, we're missing. I mean, if you look at the success actions in Central and Eastern Europe and in Romania, and also in Croatia, the, the success we've had is on high-level corruption. You know, this is where Laura Kovacic, for example, the first public prosecutor in, of, of the EU, has made her name. You know, this, this is where you actually have to start to make a difference. Uh, and this is where all the countries in the region, including my own country, Bulgaria, has been tremendously lacking. We don't see high-level corruption indictments. Now, this is where the technical part comes in. See, because we don't want these sentences to be political. We don't want that this kind of anti-corruption drive is used by the ones in power to suppress the ones in opposition or political uh, leaders that, are, that do not agree from their own party. Like, for example, it seems to happen in the anti-corruption drive of President Xi Jinping in China. Uh, so we've seen this uh, all throughout history in all developed democracy. That is why we want to make sure we have a uh, very solid judicial and criminal procedure. And for this criminal and judicial procedure to happen, you need to have solid technical knowledge starting from the police. Corruption is a very complex crime. I mean, essentially, in a typical corruption case, you have two sides that are interested in corruption transaction and and, and they're interested in, in this, in keeping this away from society. So that they very deep personal interest to not, so that everybody else doesn't know about this corruption thing and that it's, it cannot be proven. So proving corruption is extremely difficult. It's one of the most difficult um, uh, exercises in, in, uh, in, criminal, in criminal justice. That is why it requires a lot of knowledge, you know, at uh, a, a lot of technical knowledge in police, in prosecutorial services, in in, in in the judiciary, and it can be in any in any sphere, from public you know, from public procurement, privatization, licensing. Uh, you could think of all the different ways in which corruption could happen in um, uh, uh, in, in a country, and that's very very difficult. That's why not just we need this technical thing, but we also need the value thing. We need to know that our political leaders come in office and talk about and propose ideas about how to diminish this corruption problems. First, they admit it. Secondly, they, 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 we wanna see public debates about how you go about it, how you strengthen anti-corruption commissions within governments, how you strengthen inspectorates, how you strengthen uh, and empower mm -hmm. um, uh, 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 the uh, the independent audit offices, um, you know, at municipal level, at state level, in the judiciary, you know, how do you have ethics committees, you know, how do 
lobby laws function, and so on. So, so how do political parties finance themselves? One of the nerves of the raw nerves of democracy globally. So these are all issues that we don't see debated in, in our polit political systems. You know, how do we keep media independent? How do we fund investigative media? How do we make sure that we fund investigative media and civil society that uncovers corruption in a way that it, we don't compromise that independence? You know, how do our parliaments debate corruption? You know, how do they work with, with investigative media and with civil society to go after corrupt uh, uh, leaders? All these are questions that are bread and butter. They're the, they're the core value discussion within uh, a democracy, and we don't see this happening. Uh, we don't see these debates going on. You know, our political leaders in the region essentially either say, well, we did these reforms in our first two years in office and they solved the issue, and, now, and then we began, began looking in denial, when everybody else knows this is not true, because they are, people know when they're victims of corruption, people know when they collude, uh, and, and, that's, and, and, and that's worrying. Um, and just a final note, of course, uh, this also requires a lot of resources. And I'm not talking just financial resources, although these are also very important. We've seen a very close correlation between economic growth and anti-corruption. So whenever there is good economic growth, there is also better anti-corruption chances. You know, people, uh, people engage more because this gives them more, uh, more freedom, this gives them more chances to engage, and this, this makes them also more sophisticated in their requirements towards the political class. So that's why we should, you know, we should be very much aware that, for example, the slumping growth that we've seen after the crisis in 2008 and that we're seeing now uh, with the global energy crisis and with the war in Ukraine uh, is really problematic also for the anti-corruption movement because it both gives more powers to the government. I mean, also the COVID crisis, it gives more power to the government uh, and at the same time, um, uh, it, it stresses out all the rest of the system. So if you look at where corruption is in terms of priorities in society or, or the, in, in, in the Balkans, it went down because people start thinking more about uh, incomes, more about employment, uh, and that's, you know, that's just natural. But this is where, this is why, this is where actually democratic institutions are important because then even when people are not looking, even when people are not that interested, there are institutions that guarantee that power is not absolute, that power is actually divided and, and that it, there, there are enough checks and balances to ensure so that people don't amass uh, power, both in political sense and also in economic sense. And that's why when we talk about values and democracy, we talk about the um, deconcentration of power, essentially. Thank you, thank you, Ruslan, excellent. A, lo a lot of important points. I must, I, must, I must admit, before I forget, I want to ask you about one specific thing. You, so you mentioned the institutional um, arena, how uh, institutional framework is important and uh, institutions do their job properly. Now, uh, you're obviously focus, uh, focused um, on anti-corruption uh, the most. We hear uh, at the uh, public administration functioning, which is which are topics that are, uh, let's say, uh, naturally, uh, of course, drawn together. So uh, we often see, uh, this is something that also that you have recognized in your work, that uh, 
um, mechanisms for state civil society cooperation are often, let's say, um, um, just uh, just there to fulfill some uh, formal procedures, right? It's often uh, faking the involvement, faking the cooperation, the conversation, but just for the purpose of being able to say, hey, we have consulted the civil society, we have ticked the box, and we can now move on. And uh, this is something that we can... I, I believe we can find examples in each and every uh, country uh, of our region. Now, in such circumstances, whether we speak about the uh, anti-corruption dialogue, public administration reform dialogue, it doesn't doesn't really matter in this uh, for this particular conversation. So, when all the, these official mechanisms are closed or overly formal or something similar. What is there left for us to uh, to go to? What will be the most important, uh, or let's say, available channel that we can use for this for this uh, communication? Because essentially, we we as CSO networks that engage in uh, evidence-based data collection, collation, and advocacy, we need this communication line with the authorities. This is it is natural for our work. Still, we need to stay independent, as you suggested. So. Uh, what is for you, in the circumstances as they are, uh, the most valuable or possible cooperation mechanism? Or is there anything new that we can't do that we didn't do already? That's a that's a really important question. Um, about think about the government. You know, the, in, in even in just economic terms, in financial terms, the government controls usually between a third and almost a half of the economy in some in some cases in terms of gdp and that's just the nominal terms because they control every aspect of our life and and of our interaction they set the rules that's why we need an independent uh independent institutions that would be equally equally distant from everyone that seeks their uh, their, their help and also, that's why judiciary is so important. And we need institutions that are able to change as society changes and taking into account the different interests. That's why civil society and different civil society organizations are so important, because you can't possibly have a centralized structures of the public administration that would be able to take all these different interests into account, because essentially, democracy is a rule by majority but taking into account the interests and the uh, grievances of, of, of all the different minorities that are out there. Um, that's why institutions are so important. And it's also, as you mentioned, that is why most of the civil society can only be as capable as it is allowed to be, as, it, as the institutions are actually there. Um, and there are two specific issues here. You know, there are many different civil society actors. You know, there are the activist civil society. You know, that just put a um, um, a, a, a value like in human rights, let's say, in absolute terms, and then they go about fighting all the way, everywhere, in all possible means, no boundaries or legal possible means with the government to make it happen. But most of the civil society is actually depends on the leverage they could have with the government, on the engagement they have with the government or different government institutions. And that's only natural because the resources that the government has at their disposal, the power they have, is tremendously higher 
than what civil society have. I mean, we have either data, knowledge, um, uh, 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 speaking with citizens, so citizens' interests, membership, um, uh, all uh, such values. And the government has the uh, instruments to, to, de to, to deal with that. So essentially, we need most of civil society in the region, if you look at them, that they are apolitical. You know, they don't have, you know, in their charters, they usually say they don't have any political preference. That means they will work with the government of the day to make things happen, to move forward. And that's what has been worrying in recent years. Um, let's say we've seen it all across the region, you know, including starting from Hungary, also Poland, Bulgaria, so EU members, but also notably Serbia and, and, and Albania, where we've had very strong leaders that have closed in the, um, a, the bridges of communication and of engagement with civil society. And I have to make this clear. It's, of course, it's in the it's civil society that wants to have communication with the government, but it's also in the best interest of government to ensure as, as, as broad a civil society engagement as possible. And here's the tricky part. Corruption is a sensitive issue. Yes, it is a self-defeating problem. You know, if a government goes around uh, um, um, admitting corruption uh, and not do anything about it, and not being able to convince citizens that it can do anything about it, um, then this might backfire. And people, politicians understand that very well. You know, they understand that because they have typically 40-year terms, it's very difficult to make progress on something that has been systemic for many, many years, something that even some, some say is part of, uh, has become part of, of, of the culture. I disagree with that, but it has been part of habits uh, of sorts in some, in some areas and in, 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 in certain domains. That's why tackling issues, protracted issues like corruption requires decades. I mean, think about historically, if we look at nations that have tackled corruption, like if you look at the US uh, in the late 19th century, where they had a, um, systemic problems with corruption and monopoly and stuff like that. If you think of Singapore, if you think of uh, um, uh, some Central European nations like Estonia, it took them more than 30, 40 years of very aggressive, sustained um, trial and error. Uh, to deal with that corruption. And then it took them another 30 or 40 to actually clean up the system because there is a lot of dirty money. And once this dirty money creates its way through the system, it tends to reinvest itself. So that's why I think we need to also have a better understanding that there are no miracles. You know, We cannot deal with those issues overnight. But if we are to deal with them, uh, then best chances are that this happens through engagement between political leaders, reformist minus politicians, civil society, and uh, international actors. Now, this requires time, but it also means, and politicians understand that, it also means they will have to cede power. They will have to peacefully change without trying to interfere in as people's kind of uh, attitudes change. And that's why it's important to see democratic leaders, you know, leaders that believe in those democratic uh, institutions like uh, election, like free and fair election campaigns, 
um, and, and so on so forth. When we have leaders that believe in the strong hand in centralized governance, the main thing about, and we should know best, you know, in our region, and also now we have a prime example in Russia and prime example in, in, in China, um, they might get right a lot of the decisions, you know, autocrats, I mean, and they might actually be quicker at arriving at those solutions. But the thing is, what happens after they're gone? Then we are awfully unprepared to take the next decisions. Then we have wars, then we have calamities, then we have poverty. That is why democracy, which involves a wider circles of, of stakeholders, civil society, citizens, is much better at change, is much better at evolution throughout time. And, that is, and we need to understand this when we talk about values. You know, these are the values. You know, engaging people has long-term positive repercussion for the stability uh, and resilience of our, uh, of our countries. But these, again, are very, very de delicate balances because for political leaders, it also means change. Very well said. Just a very short reflection of yours. So if you were going to choose, let's say, in this context that I just briefly described from the beginning of, uh, let's say, more closed institutions or uh, um, this formalistic environment of civil society, if you were about to choose uh, between still being engaged with the authorities and the political level decision makers and being, uh, let's say, accused at the same time of uh, being uh, co-opted or cooperating or taking a step step back until you know these kind of democratic deficits are eradicated what would you choose between the two they will they will not be eradicated unless we engage um mm -hmm. i i, I so, would choose yes. i would choose engagement and we actually we've done this in selby we've had this discussion hundreds of times every day in the past 20 years since Seldi is active in the region. And um, we've always had, we've always, and, it, and it's actually an internal question for each and every think tank and civil society that engages in public policy. Uh, this is a very thin line, a razor's edge, essentially, as to how do we engage uh, uh, without uh, uh, getting, you know, um, um, engulfed by, by power without losing your independence. And that's a very difficult walk to walk, but that's why we need to do it. You know, it's, uh, and this is where change happens. So for us, it's also difficult, but typically that's why, and, and that's why just a final thought on that, that's why I think regional networks are important because then you have partners that could pull you back out. If you make the wrong choice, if you, if they see you're losing your independence, then you have partners that would say, hey, wait a minute, you're not where you're supposed to be. You know, you need to change course. You need to, or they could tell you, you know, if you're frustrated, for example, your government has been, hasn't been, you know, has stubbornly been attacking fundamental rights, attacking civil society. And, and then you have partners that still can give you power and hope and saying, look, no matter how dark it is, you still need to engage, you know, go out, uh, offer your knowledge, offer your expertise, come clean, ask them, go knock on their doors, knock on their windows, knock everywhere you can, so that you can engage and make a change. Thanks. This is definitely the answer that I'm also uh, rooting for uh, in our work. You mentioned uh, that there is, that civil society is diverse environment, of course. Now, 
we as uh, regional networks, both in Weber and in Saudi, we are based on uh, <clears throat> creating an uh, own resources and toolboxes and methodologies for, for independent evaluation, monitoring analysis of the government operations that we then use for uh, policy advocacy. Now, uh, what would your position be in terms of constantly, let's say, redoing and reapplying over and over the same, say, tools that, and methodologies and indexes that we have, or uh, um, extending them, innovating and changing them to, uh, to accommodate the circumstances. This is something that I ask because there is this additional factor that has influence on our, on our work, which is the funding. And we are uh, usually, or sometimes, uh, also directed or channeled by the uh, donor requirements in terms of what we can or uh, cannot do. So uh, after quite some time, I believe, uh, of work within Saudi and uh, CSD, uh, and using your uh, methodologies and indexes, what is your uh, position in terms kind of uh, um, taking a different step or being, let's say, uh, true to the core mission, to the, um, to the um, approach that you have and continuing what you do? It, does this uh, make sense? Absolutely. Um, well, first, let me, well, let me say something about funding. Um, it is problematic, you know, when, you know, one of the uh, major attacks on civil society in the region is you, you've all been funded by the EU, um, which is legitimate. Uh, I mean, we are funded uh, mostly by the European Union. But also, I should say, um, this is only right because we want to be part of a, of a union and uh, this union is actually going to work throughout taxes. So if that's so, uh, it's absolutely legitimate that we also work with the institutions and with the partners that are that are out there. So, when I think, in particular, when when I come from an EU member state, uh, when I think, oh, but even if you come from a candidate country, if one day we will be making decisions together, we will be a family, which means that we need to be fine with family with the ideas of our family members, uh, you know. And if they choose to fund civil society, then we should be fine with. Uh, this thing, because it's a core value of the European Union, you know, civil society and diversity of civil society. And actually, that's why I think also national governments should be looking in, into that. Now, the things about change, I, I believe in, uh, in competition, uh, just like I believe in democracy and market economy, I also believe in competition in civil society. I don't, I don't think any of our networks knows all the answers all the way uh, every time and, and worlds change, people change, methodologies change. Um, but I also believe in institutions and, uh, and, and, and some functions like a watchdog function where you have a, like Weber has chosen to look at the public administration reform uh, or we've chosen to look in, in corruption. Some things work like watchdog, like where you look at and uncover whether things are progressing or not uh, on a set of criteria. And these have been well-chosen, academically proven and sound. Uh, that usually is good. 
our strength is our, our uh, transparency. You know, anyone could look up Saudi, could see who the, his partners are, could see what we're doing, could see who is funding this, could see how much money we gave for this or for that. It's completely transparent, and that's and and that's the important thing. But also, we engage with the. We are always kind of on the pulse of what is happening internationally. You know, our world evolves. You know, we are now there is social media now. Uh, that is a lot more digital than analog. Um, uh, that is the there, there was the pandemics. So uh, we are in in situations that require different uh, actions, and we we are preparing for this. You know, we are adapting our methodologies, we are adapting our um, uh, our work. Um, I I'm not an absolute believer in methodologies, you know, or, or in tools, but I do believe that we need, we need them in order to have the bottom line. For example, Seldi calculates the corruption victimization across the region. And with that number, you can go to institutions and say, look, we had an improvement between 2001 and 2016. And there was a cost, okay, there were always ups and downs, different years, blah, blah, blah. But if you look at the long term, you know, if you look at the 20, at 15 years, 2001, 2016, it's been going down across the region in all the countries. But when you look at 2016, 2021, it's ups and downs, but it's also flat. You know, there are changes in different years. And so, so we are doing something wrong. You know, we need to change something. And we need to, and this is an excellent tool to confront governments, you know, and to, to ask them, so what, what are we going to do? You know, we propose this, this, and that. Do you have a plan? Do you have a strategy? And just a final note on funding. Uh, a lot of people say uh, the Western Balkans is you know, overfunded. I don't think so. Democracy is, is expensive, and that's one of the reasons why anti-corruption is also so closely correlated with economic growth. Um, and I think, for example, if you look at the level of funding both private and public sectors uh, receive in EU countries, uh, compared to their GDP in terms of anti-corruption efforts, all the different initiatives that you have in terms of transparency, in terms of integrity of public administration, it is much higher in EU member states than it's in the Western Balkans, for example. And of course, it's the thing is, we cannot substitute that only with external funding. We cannot just ask the European Commission, okay, provide bigger funds, because you need to have also local community funds to do that. Uh, it is, people don't realize it, and people typically think and live with this, that we are a poor region, and we are. But at the same time, if you think about it, we are wealthier than 50 or 60% of the global population. Uh, so we do have, and we do have one thing that we always have, it's our time and our capacities to do to do change and to do stuff but again it should be national governments and also local governments committing to uh, also helping out in that respect not just waiting for the EU or some external force to, to do that uh, thank you. And just a final question for you, because uh, the time is actually running short and uh, we will definitely continue the discussion on another occasion. Uh, uh, final topic, we are unfortunately witnessing war in, a, in our neighborhood in uh, Ukraine. So your final thoughts very shortly, if you can, uh, about how this, in your opinion, affects 
civil society coalitions, networks, their cooperation for good governance. And um, our region, more broadly, let's say, defines Southeast Europe and, uh, and, uh, and beyond. And what are the consequences, immediate consequences for the future of the civil society from your let, let me be clear, war is bad. There is no good war in, you know, uh, whatever. So war, the war in Ukraine is bad for civil society, it's bad for the region, it strengthens uh, autocracies. But how it plays out is important. Um, and, and I think and I hope that we see a successful free Ukraine, because then we will know that a society that fought for anti-corruption and uh, Ukraine got a lot of funding and a lot of help to, uh, for its anti-corruption campaigns in the past 10 years, has been successful in fending off aggression. Um, and that, I think, is, is very, very important for the um, uh, for invigoration or for the engagement or for the motivation of anti-corruption democracy movements all around the world. So uh, that's why I think the outcome of this war is very, very important. Um, and, and, and I think it will also show whether, uh, and I think it's already showing, and a lot of people were actually surprised by the solidity and integrity of the Ukrainian government. I think part of this was the result of EU's um, efforts to tackle corruption in the past 10 years. There were a lot of investments, a lot of, of civil society, really good civil society actors in Ukraine in the past 10 years have done a lot of progress. Um, and I would say in some areas it has been even much faster and much better uh, in Ukraine than in the Western Balkans in the past, in particular in the past decade. So I think uh, it will be important to see a successful outcome for Ukraine in this war. Thank you. Um, we've reached the end of this uh, podcast uh, episode. I'm, it was a really, really useful conversation that uh, gave, I hope, all our listeners more comprehensive and holistic approach on this civil society cooperation in our region on good governance. And I think that it also demonstrated that, as you elaborated previously, it's not uh, good governance is not only about technical matters, but rather it's uh, substance-based, it's value-driven, and it's something that is important for human rights uh, and democracy, uh, both short-term and long-term. So uh, thank you very much for that. I really enjoyed this conversation and uh, I am sure we will meet uh, uh, on uh, another occasion. Um, I just want to inform our listeners, if you are interested in the work of uh, Mr. Stefanov, the Center for Study of Democracy or CELDI Network, um, you can visit uh, websites, celdi.net or csd.bg. There is uh, plenty of uh, useful resources and evidence and publications about the topics that we have uh, talked about today. Uh, I thank you for your uh, attention and we will see each other on uh, in the next episode.